Hi everyone, this is Tamsin Barillet, Senior Lead of Global Sports Marketing for Basketball and Team Sports with Under Armour, and this is One on One with ADC Partners. Hi, this is Dave Elmy of ADC Partners. Now, at any given time, there are probably something like 120 categories of businesses engaged in sports partnerships. Not really. I, I actually looked it up once. And of all those categories of business, I don't think there's any as competitive as sports apparel and footwear. It is not for the faint of heart. Books have been written and movies have been made about how intense it is. Now, that's why Tamsin Barillet, Under Armour's senior lead for global sports marketing, is so perfect for that industry. She's a fearsome competitor, a skill she honed on the basketball courts of her native France. And after competing at the D1 level in the U.S. and a brief pro career in France, Tamsin turned her eyes to the business side of sports. And if you're guessing that her competitive nature served her well, you'd be correct. In our conversation, Tamsin and I talk about her early days as a basketball prodigy in France, the transition from playing sports to working in it, her current role at Under Armour, the evolution of that brand's partnership with global superstar Steph Curry, and how she stays on top of an industry that changes by the minute. Now, our conversation takes off quicker than a Steph Curry crossover, so brace yourself and enjoy. When I used to work at the Cavaliers... Fun fact, we had uh, one of our corporate sponsors was from Switzerland, but he, the CEO of the company, uh, Tissot, which you've probably heard of them, mm -hmm. the watch company. Yeah. The CEO is French and I'm French. So the team had put together this like welcome video for him as he came in uh, into town because they were presenting championship watches to the team after the 2016 run. And so they asked me to record a whole video, <laughs> like a voiceover on the video. So I actually did a whole voiceover in French for <laughs> so, so somewhere, I'm assuming online, there is a your 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 first broadcast experience is was, absolutely uh, in, indoctrinated. In, yeah, and in French. <laughs> and in French, right? Well, I'm assuming that, you know, this the way this unfolds is there could be many more French expressions and phrases used, but we're going to get to that later. But where I want to start, yeah, because we've already sort of ro started rolling here is that you know, basketball is kind of in your blood. I mean, this is this is a you are a straight up no messing around basketball player, right? And you know, you you played D one at Kent State. Uh, you captained the U twenty Great Britain team for a FIBA championship, and and you played professionally in France uh, for a bit. Um, so I'm I'm kind of curious. You know, as you as you started playing basketball, when was that moment where you thought, okay, this this sport. I'm pretty good at this and this can yeah. this can maybe take me places that i and i that it might not be able to take other people fact about me is i grew up in france um with a very international family my mom's from the uk my father's from south america actually from chile they somehow at some point ended up meeting <laughs> in the uk and the then, fates uh, combined to create a basketball player yeah basically the united nations <laughs> runs through my blood um and uh and anyways landed in france when i was about three years of age I played all kinds of different sports and cultural activities that my mom signed me up for. 
Yeah, so you were new to France, so she really wanted to get you embedded yeah, in the culture. Get yeah. make friends and all the whole thing. <laughs> exactly. But to answer your question, uh, the, the age where for me things really shifted or where I honestly felt like basketball was my kind of destiny in a lot of ways, uh, I was probably about 10 or 11 years old. Okay. At that time, I was playing in a, in a small local club in my hometown. And uh, my coaches at the time had put my name forward for uh, basically these kind of regional camps, selection camps, um, that the way the French system works, they have a lot of, essentially the federation puts on these regional selection tours where clubs can send their best players to um, eventually form the best team for that specific county or region. Yeah. Um, and then eventually there's more of like a national tournament that happens. And so you get scouted to eventually then get recruited by clubs or bigger clubs, but also um, federation owned academies where they then you know, you can come and, and, you know, train at a much higher level yeah. and also for the national team program. So that's kind of how they start fostering at a very young age, essentially a pipeline of uh, talented athletes. And so, um, but you're 10 or 11 years old, right? And your coaches, very young. <laughs> very young. I mean, did you have a sense that you were good at it at that time or was it just um, something you I mean, liked I, to do? I was, I was a very, I was one of, I was definitely the best player on my team in my small little town, um, at that point. And so when they put me forward for this um, selection camp, I was up obviously confronted with girls that were taller, bigger, and better than me. <laughs> right. But uh, but I always the pool had, got a little deeper. Yeah, I definitely had a drive, a, a natural drive, quite honestly, that mm. um, I wanted to be better than them. And so so it didn't parents, quite, you didn't quail in that moment. You didn't go like, oh my gosh, this is way beyond me. You kind of knuckled down and thought, okay. Yeah, I didn't feel like I was completely far off the line, but I, I knew I could with a bit of hard work and being around better players could get there. Yeah. Um, and so my mom and dad actually allowed me to go to this camp. And then from that camp, I got recruited by a bigger club that was, you know, 30, 40 minutes away from my house in a slightly bigger town. Um, and that's when things really kicked off for me. And it became a bigger deal. Were, had your parents had any sort of big basketball background or was this all new to them too? My parents were both athletes, but okay. were not basketball players. My dad was more so on the rugby side of things. Okay. Uh, my mom did track, but funnily enough, my grandmother... <laughs> it's like rugby and track kind of fused <laughs> into this thing. <laughs> yeah, but funnily enough, my grandmother was uh, on my dad's side. She played basketball, you know, back way back when. when oh, wow, that's was. pretty cool. When women were still wearing skirts. To the long skirts. <laughs> yeah, Because exactly. heaven forbid we should see their ankles when they play sports. Exactly. And so that's, that's she always used to tell me uh, before she passed away that, you know, I got, I got my skills from her. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, but that's, that's kind of how it all kicked off. And, and then I eventually left home. Yeah. I was 13, 14 years of age and I entered one of those academies that was about two hours away from my house. Um, that's a big moment. In a boarding boarding room type setup yeah. uh, with a lot of athletes from obviously basketball, but different sports who were all training for their Olympic dreams, really. Yeah. And there was gymnasts, judo and tennis and squash and gymnastics. I mean, you name it. There was every sport there. Um, and that's kind of where I entered kind of the elite youth space in, in sort of the French system at a pretty young age. And then that ultimately led to playing college in the U.S. And like I said earlier, I mean, you're competing in FIBA championships and things like that. You go on yeah. to have a pretty remarkable basketball career. And, and But I've spoken to a number of athletes in the past about that. What can be a challenging moment when you start to see, okay, the competing side of sports is 
coming to an end, right? And sometimes yeah. that's selective. Sometimes it just happens to you. Can you talk a little bit about that transition when you go from being an athlete? Because you had a little bit of overlap while you were playing basketball and you started to look at the business side of sports. So I think you interned at the mm-hmm. Cavs. What were you prepared for? Like, where do you feel like competing as an athlete prepared you for sports business? And where do you feel like you went, oh boy, I got, I got a lot to learn here. You know, what's, what's happening. Can you talk a little bit that transition? I think the, the biggest unlock for me was actually that internship with the Cavs. The, mm. It was my senior year at Kent. And part of my sports management degree was a required 15 week internship in some type of, you know, sport organization. And luckily got my foot in the door there and, and had a, a tremendous um, sort of spring slash summer experience to kind of really discover the business side of sports that I had no clue, <laughs> really had no clue <laughs> what it was, what it meant. Yeah, There was always a part of me that I knew post playing days, I wanted to stay in sports and knew I, I had a, a passion for marketing and, you mm-hmm. know, kind of the, the corporate sponsorship side of things. And I, I, done a lot of reading and partly my my dad had sort of given me a lot of information about the Mark McCormick and and read his books and all that stuff and and I so really, you really knew about the partnership side going in I knew about the partnership side going in um mm. I didn't know how it would happen or sure. how it comes to life or how those things even got sold or whatever it's right I just magic I just knew that it was it was in the ecosystem while well, one being an athlete you 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 deal with sponsors and this yeah. that, and the other. You're right? surrounded but by it. You're surrounded by it, but you don't really know how it comes how it comes to life and on all those things. And so that internship really unlocked and opened my eyes. And I knew from the end of that internship, I was like, when I'm done playing, I definitely want to come back and work for the NBA or come back and work in some capacity in the professional sports world from the business side of things and and kind of grow in that sense. What what really kind of for me the biggest thing was coming from Europe and seeing the NBA which is a massive sort of it is an apples and oranges thing they play the same game but it's just not the same <laughs> it's not um especially in the basketball world you could maybe argue you know the 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 global football side of things and the premier mm-hmm. league is up there but the the basketball side is nowhere near as developed as it is in the US and so there was just this sort of hunger inside of me that even when i went back to France and played, I'd stayed in touch very heavily with the leaders at the Cavs. And, mm-hmm. and in the event that I decided to come back, I, I would at least keep, you know, keep in touch with them to hopefully open up some doors later so on. So you're really assertive, like you knew this was some ways you wanted to go. So you wanted to make sure to continue to leverage those relationships. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And I actually, when I went, when I was in France playing, I actually was selling sponsorship for the men and the women. So my team and the men's team. So you were playing and selling at the same time. And selling. Yeah. I just had come (laughs) off that internship and I'd learned so much and I got into this professional world and I I just realized I was like, I have a lot of time on my hands and I wanted to continue (laughs) to learn. Yeah. Um, I wasn't going to school, you know, every day anymore. And so I actually asked the president of the club if I could sell sponsorship for both the men and the women's team. And, And we were one of the unique clubs in France that actually had both structures under the same umbrella and so 
he kind of he was like sure that would be great like why not and um yeah, really. myself okay. a little a little sales commission and, yeah. um, and kind of went from there and so I kind of stayed in touch with it but it was it was a very different world I mean it was definitely more you know door-to-door -door sales like I would yeah. walk around the city of Lyon which is where I was living and meet up with business owners and meet up with um restaurant owners you know small businesses in the area because that's how a lot of these clubs are, are really live off is yeah they're really local locally oriented clubs really focusing yeah, on they, small businesses exactly and and so um got a few to kind of come on as as partners and um and that was it but ultimately my you know my career ended up a bit sooner than i anticipated i, I had a pretty bad hip injury that oh, okay, um, yeah finished things and so very quickly i i reorientated myself to come back to the u.s um and start working for the Cavs again and then also went to school at the same time to kind of get a master's degree and, and continue my education. So that's how I yeah, yeah. came back this way. Did you just feel like there was more of an upside to coming back to the States to work for the NBA, that you could learn more, that there was a higher ceiling for yourself than there would be in France? Was that the major motivator? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I'd seen night and day going from, you know, camp kind of internship at the Cavs. <laughs> then I went back to France. And granted, it's one of the largest clubs in France for basketball, but it's just nowhere near as, as where the NBA is. And and I knew, yeah, upside, financial, even just growth um, that the U.S. and in, in the NBA for me was definitely where I wanted to start my career off the off the court. Well, suffice it to say, you also come back to the Cavaliers when they have this fella named LeBron James playing for them. I suppose yes. that <laughs> kind of helps with the profile of the club and probably getting you some definitely some <laughs> some access to opportunities and exposure that really you couldn't at that point in time get just about anywhere else, right? Because you're with the Cavs during LeBron James's tenure there, you win an NBA championship, and obviously there's a ton of attention being paid to the team because he's the most marketable athlete on the planet. But then he leaves. How did that change from your experience, right? When you have that person who is just draws so much attention and so many brands want to be affiliated with him and then he's gone did you have to adjust your approach did the Cavs have to adjust their approach significantly after his departure the short answer is, is yes absolutely yeah. Yeah. um yeah. The, the biggest thing was I mean you summarize it really well it, it was it was an incredible time for Cleveland it was an incredible time for the organization the Cleveland Cavaliers as a whole and 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 we capitalized on it as yeah. much as we could like sure. we were signing early renewing extending contracts while we could when we could type yeah. of thing. oh it's a golden time <laughs> um but on the flip side of that what what so, certainly the trickle effect of that of us being proactive in not knowing how long he was going to be around for is is what came after which was that that sort of year or two until the well what took really two or three years for the team to start rebuilding mm. Um, and finding success again is essentially over delivering for the current partners that still remained right uh, finding flexibility in the contracts to renegotiate terms you know we uh, i think the cavaliers in some cases from my experience now even having left and worked with other teams around the league from on behalf of other brand clients is 
their willingness just to be good partners, quite honestly, and and sort of uh, finding flexibility in allowing to plus up, plus down in certain cases where and when it made sense, you know, and certainly uh, from the account teams that manage each and individual client is to find opportunities to generate more uh, value for the partnership, even with assets that maybe weren't necessarily in those contracts. So uh, over delivering on social media, over delivering on broadcast, over delivering on signage, you know, all those different things that would at least ease the conversation a little bit more with with certain brand partners who maybe didn't understand why they maybe had lost so much value in, from one year to the next, or at least, hey, with the assets you have, you lost value, but we proactively gave you X, Y, Z to plus up your sort of partnership packages. So it just depended on the client, what they valued, what they didn't, and all those types of things to to come up with a sort of a make good plan, essentially, is what it came, I think we call yeah, it. Yeah, so I guess, it's, is it fair to say then, like, if, if the product changes that dramatic, like you can sell on the product, right? And when LeBron James was playing for the Cavaliers, I mean, the team and the success was the product you were selling. But yeah. when that changes significantly, you saw the imperative of changing the lens on the approach, which became much more service oriented right i want to make sure that you feel like this is a special investment yeah okay the team's not performing the way it did when lebron was here right. and maybe we're not getting as many prime time games uh, as we did before but you are getting a service team that is going to make sure your experience here is unlike anything you've got in your other investment portfolio is that about right that's about yeah that's absolutely right and really just there was this sort of mentality of going above and beyond to making sure that the partners felt we were over delivering and doing what was right and doing what was right by them. Um, ultimately knowing that more renewal conversations would be hap happening, you know, during that time and showing our proactivity to really over deliver, I think helped a lot of those conversations. And then certainly some partners decreased their spend or decreased or some may have walked away, but at least it, it, they walked away on good terms. Right. Because you never know when they could come back again. Correct. And here, you know, three years later, the team is is playoff contender and they're doing well again. And we know these things ebb, ebbs and flows and, and, and especially, you know, around sports and the teams and, and whatnot. Well, I'm assuming also your skill set has to improve dramatically in that kind of environment, too. Right. Because it goes from when you're selling LeBron James and the Cavaliers during that period of time, you're kind of just picking up the phone <laughs> and saying, how, many do, harder you, yeah, yeah. how <laughs> many do you want? Like, OK, I'll see what I can. I'll see if I can squeeze you in. <laughs> versus really understanding what it takes to make those partnerships work. And I'm assuming then that that's one of the things you carried over when you went over to Excel sports management, right? Because now you're managing on behalf of clients, right? You're not, you're not selling into clients and managing the partnerships on behalf of the team. Now you're going and representing them. I think it was Vistaprint and or yeah. and, and that's, I think, probably one of your first real interactions with Under Armour. Yeah, no, yeah, the, the Excel experience was, uh, was eye-opening for me in the sense that I'd spent five or so years plus at the Cavs and being on the team side and, and really sort of owning my book of business and owning my clients and owning the execution portion of their relationships, right? Um, moving to the agency side and now I'm sort of, I always kind of felt like the woman in the middle between the brand and, and, <laughs> yeah. and the, the teams or the leagues or even the athletes that we were engaging with on behalf of the client. But what I brought to the table was an understanding of what can and should be done from the eye of the teams. And so, and, and I think part of why the reason Excel brought me on was to manage a lot of their clients who had a variety of team league deals, particularly with the NBA. And actually Vistaprint was, was one who had just took on the Jersey sponsorship with 
the Celtics at the time. And I, when I was at the Cavs, I managed Goodyear from the Cavs. So I kind of knew and had a good sense of, of how those Jersey partnerships particularly worked, um, what you can ask for, what you can push for, you know, all those things to kind of help the brand, in this case, Vista Print, sort of get more out of their partnership than maybe what was written in black and white on the contract. And so that's where I really found my sort of fruitful approach to the team and the account team that we, I was on and part of at Excel was to bring that sort of perspective that they maybe didn't have at the time on that team, because a lot of, of my colleagues there were, had always been on the agency side, you know, right. and sort of and really only experienced that side, that lens of it. Did working with a number of different NBA teams surprise you a little bit with the variety of capability and variety of approaches that they took yes. to survive? <laughs> yeah. All right, people who can't see this, a big smile on the face. <laughs> yeah, even just across other leagues too. Um, yeah. Seeing, you know, working with some NFL teams oh, yeah. <laughs> versus um, MLS teams versus NBA teams. They all yeah. value certain things drastically differently based on where they're obviously stronger or not so strong <laughs> in the case of the different you know levels of assets. And so, no, it was, it was definitely interesting for me to see the big differences and then also how they manage their, how they manage their sponsors, quite honestly. I'd come from a, obviously, a smaller market where in a lot of cases we had to over deliver over overcompensate to kind of make big brands feel special for them to want to come back and sponsor the team in Cleveland versus working with a, a New York market team who will this get is the everything. way we do things. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> This is it. Um, and you fit in this bucket or you don't. And so, um, so that there was definitely challenges in that as well. But I think it's such an important thing to particularly as you make the transition to now you, you, you've gone from team to agency and, and then you move on to brand. Now you're on the brand side. You manage that relationship on behalf of the brand. No more middleman. Was that what was compelling to you to go to Under Armour? I mean, obviously, super high profile brand. Yeah. Um, big investment in basketball. But now more control and, and you're the client. Was that was that a significant draw? Yeah, it was it was one of the I'd say the pluses of the, the, the role and the opportunity was to go to an organization that one is born and raised in sports marketing, right? Yeah. Uh, you can't their origin you, story. Yeah, it's you can't really sort of fake the fact that you're in sports, like if you're not, if you're an outfitter, if you're <laughs> you're right. they don't sell into the symphony. No. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely harder in some cases for, you know, a bank or a financial group to be in the sponsorship sports marketing space, but someone like an outfitter like us, it's, it's the most organic thing that you could yeah. possibly be right in the space. So that was one of the reasons. The other reasons is, is kind of definitely what you just said. And, and for me, the, you know, transitioning over into this role was so that I could have a bit more accountability and decision-making ability mm -hmm. to impact the business and to see direct return on certain ideas or thoughts or strategic moves that we would make um, to kind of, and see them come to life. And yes, we obviously work with great agency partners and we have team partners and league partnerships and all those things where we obviously have to rely on them to to do certain things. But I, I do really much enjoy being on the almost like the front end of 
the decision or the idea to then go to these respective partners and, and hopefully make things happen. But it can be challenging on the agency side because you are playing that middle role between teams and brands and you can make suggestions that you know or feel like, boy, this would be just the perfect concept or idea. But there's nothing says the brands or the teams have to say okay. So, I mean, you do have this, well, I got to make sure that you just keep plugging away and get used to um, how that decision-making happens within those organizations versus being on the brand side where you can be, okay, here's what we really want the strategy to be. Here's what I've learned in my 10, 15 years of doing this business and really can start to apply it. Um, and for, for those who don't know, can you give a quick overview of your day-to-day -day at Under Armour where your responsibilities lie? Sure. So the, the role that I'm in now uh, is primarily uh, strategically driven. So mm -hmm. my my focus ultimately is to help uh, UA grow our brand recognition, presence, awareness in the sports marketing landscape through our, what we call pillars, internally mm -hmm. speaking, which are athletes and influencers is one second one being properties and partnerships. And then the third one being grassroots. So anything around okay. the youth um, yep. development space. So we sort of live in those three ecosystems. And then for the, for the specific sports that I oversee, which are basketball, volleyball, and American football, I really look at those three pillars around the world um, in the regions that they obviously are, are most important and make sure that we're connecting with all three of these pillars and making sure that we have presence in all of them. And if we yeah. don't, then how do we get there, right? Right, okay. Um, so first, it's a, the first probably year of my role was really just a good sort of like gut check of where we stand and and having a bit of a you know come to realization of where we're not good um and so how do we improve that and then from there building a strategy to to get to that point of where we want to be by a certain amount of time which typically is a you know let's say a two to three year cap you know yeah calendar, so your calendar and so from there you know working with the business my business partners internally speaking and saying okay basketball is a priority from a business standpoint and we want to grow x amount profits revenue etc in the basketball space um how can sports marketing support that so we look at the basketball ecosystem and we like we know footwear is where revenue is mostly driven in our yeah. world so how can we make sure that we have the right athletes to open up opportunities with wholesale partners and distribution partners, right? Having the right signature athletes to do that. Right, what's going to garner the attention and engagement? Correct. Um, what's going to drive, yeah, what's going to drive attention. And then, you know, from a properties and partnership, what are the types of partners, whether that be an NBA league partnership or WNBA league partnership or certain teams in certain key cities, if we have like a, a city attack in certain markets or, you know, in an international space, what, are there certain countries where we're really trying to make an impact in, in Europe or in APAC? Um, so how, how do we look at that landscape and maybe start talking to federations and national governing bodies? And, and then same thing on the youth side, right? We have a tremendous presence in the youth space, especially in the United States for yeah. basketball. But when you start looking at the rest of the world, we have a lot of opportunities for growth. So who are the right youth organizations out there that we might want to partner with, or do we want to create our own initiatives to, to do so? So it's kind of a lot to take on. No, you're talking about a, a, not only a Rubik's cube of different colors, but I mean, it's kind of like a fourth dimensional Rubik's cube. And the, the part of that I think is the most fascinating yeah. thing of what you do is the emphasis on, you know, it's in your title. I mean, it's global marketing programs. And you just alluded to it a second ago because you know, the good news is that basketball is a, is truly a global sport. Um, and that's great. But 
you know, it's true that just not one marketing message won't work for everybody. So can you speak to the opportunity and the challenge there is like, how do you, how do you work to ensure relevancy when your market is truly global? It's a tough one for yeah. sure. I think the biggest piece is one being aware of those cultural regional differences. Yeah. Right? Um, and then we have regional partners that are, sit in those respective areas too. And so we obviously have a lot of healthy discussions around what is the best approach for that specific region or country or in and around a specific campaign. No. I think there's there's some there's a very small sort of like group of athletes out there like a Stephen Curry or LeBron James who have this global appeal and impact no matter what language you're speaking to them people know who they are they recognize them and they sort of you know are are attracted by the products that they they offer you know under sort of their their brand and their image um but when you're when you're providing different types of programming or marketing activation opportunities it's it's crucially important that there is the regional deal, like sort of nuances and that they're taken into consideration um, because otherwise you just you show up as tone deaf is not really yeah. understanding you end up doing more harm than good exactly and so we we have a lot of regional approaches that mm -hmm. sort of basically they'll take the global recommendation or the u.s approach but then okay. they'll tweak it to yep. the market itself um whether it's you know adjusting maybe the types of athletes that show up in the imagery or you know the language in itself and applying different types of text and connotations and also, in some cases, the region will take ownership of a certain tactical activation and completely redefine it for yeah. what is best for that specific market. Do you feel like your international background kind of helps you in this regard? I mean, you kind of approach things with a bit of an international lens anyway, just uh, yeah, dual citizenship it, and everything. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I, that's probably one of the biggest reasons they hired yeah. me um, is, <laughs> is that I came in with, uh, uh, honestly, just an outside of the U.S. approach of bath, especially when it came to basketball, part the recognition I, that this is global. Correct. We need people who can think globally, and and the fact that like I came through the system right of yeah. international or even a French system. I played internationally, and so I, I understand the FIBA world of basketball, not yeah. just the NBA and the WNBA. And so there was definitely, I think, a big selling point for them. And then my personal background and understanding the cultural nuances that exist. Um, just because I lived and breathed in my own family, uh, <laughs> but it's, uh, but it's, yeah, no, it was definitely something that even for me, when I was looking into the role that I found extremely appealing was, was that I was going to be able to have those cultural different types. Yeah. You're going to be able to use what you knew. Exactly. Like I have calls with my Europe team every so often, my APAC team every so often. And, you know, and, um, yeah, it might be seven o'clock in the morning because it's seven o'clock in the night over oh, there. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's <laughs> so true downside of working internationally, right? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but that's was definitely something that I, um, I really very much enjoyed. Uh, yeah. uh, I've been enjoying about the role as well. So I read this article not too long ago where uh, Sean Eggert, who's the senior vice president of sports marketing at UA said, and I'm going to, this is a somewhat lengthy quote, so bear with me for a second. I said, uh, I always thought it was the allure of the brand and compensation package that attracted the athlete. And that's not so much the case anymore. It's the connection that you build with them that may make the difference. And you create special relationships when you find that you're after the same goals. 
Um, athletes have become a lot more sophisticated uh, about the power of their own personal brands, right? And, uh, and how their partnerships extend that image and values. And I'm wondering, have you seen this change over the course of your career? Like when you were at the Cavs, you saw LeBron James and probably no one other than maybe Michael Jordan and some other athletes along the way understood that about what they brought to the table. So I'm wondering, have you seen that change and how, how has UA evolved to address yeah. that, that, that shift in their, in their recognition of that? Have definitely seen an evolution. Uh, I think looking at, you know, time at the Cavs, even at Excel, where in a lot of cases, uh, athletes, some were just seeking the check. Some are yep. just looking maybe to raise their brand and their image mm -hmm. a little bit here and there. But at the end of the day, you know, there, there was definitely that stigma of they're just doing it because they have to or right. because it's kind of expected of them. Um, I think social media has definitely affected and changed that approach. And also agents and agencies have been a lot more, uh, I'd say, probably stronger in educating their athletes of like, who and why and when you should accept or look into certain partnerships and also yeah. making sure that to your point values aligned. I mean, having an athlete, you know, do a commercial for Pepsi, but he never drinks Pepsi ever, like how that can come off as inauthentic and, and consumers have gotten so much smarter where they can just pick that up now and they know Very quickly, feels, yeah. right. It feels fake. Um, yeah. We call it like the fake radar. Fake <laughs> radar. Yeah, like the younger, younger audience at this point is definitely like their fake radar is the strongest than any consumer. Like they just know right away if, it, if this is a sponsored by versus an athlete actually doing it out of their own will or goodwill. Right. For us at UA, the biggest thing is we've actually benefited a lot from in some ways from this shift in mindset of like mm -hmm. wanting sort of values to align and finding athletes that want to be activated and want to be in what we call a true partnership, not just a footwear endorsement deal, not just a service, you know, getting free product type of deal, actually wanting to be activated. And, and it typically has come from a, a deeper vetting process from our side to actually uncover and peel off that information from the athlete, you know, him or herself. And so in the past, we, you know, the, the, company was very much about just sponsoring everybody and anybody that was willing to be with Under Armour because we were trying to get our name out there, our brand oh, out there. Mile wide, inch um, deep. Yeah. Yeah. And in some cases that uh, certainly, you know, caused the company to question itself because a lot of money was going out. Um, and, and eventually some strategic moves came, came by and certainly under Sean's leadership where uh, we're a lot more about the quality over the quantity of athletes at this point. And ensuring that the athletes that we do partner with want to be with Under Armour, want to be a part of Under Armour, and we want to be a part of their story too, right? And so finding efficient ways to, to, to do that. And that just comes from really digging deeper into the vetting and the conversation process with the agent, but the athlete themselves as well. Um, and we've actually gotten quite a few athletes now in the last couple of years that I've been here who have come from other competitive brands of ours and have left. And the, we hear it a lot is that they just feel like another number. Yeah. They yeah. just feel like another number. They're not Nobody's really listening. Fine. Yeah. And some athletes are fine with that. Yeah. They just want to be the other number and get the product and whatever. Right. And they I get the shoes and I get the check and I call it a day. They don't want to be in marketing campaigns. They don't want to do appearances and all that stuff. But there is a pretty decent amount of athletes who are who understand the power of their brand who understand the power of their image who want to 
leverage it and who want to elevate where they are, where they currently sit, because they understand that it drives more revenue opportunities for them, drives more business opportunities for them, et cetera. And not, like I said, not all athletes are the same, but when you do find those athletes that are like that, it is very special. Um, And yeah, it's gold and certainly gives us a ton of leverage to put ideas in front of them, make them feel a part of the process not only of like a product development process, but also where can we go with this? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And like understanding what makes them tick, you know, what are some like things that make them angry about the industry or make them angry about, you know, uh, inequalities that exist out there or or things that they want to change. And what's important to them. Yeah. What's important to them in the youth space or in the community that they're from or that they play in, et cetera. So we really try to craft now is is these partnerships that really live and breathe around the athletes ecosystem versus just plugging and playing into what would have been the traditional yeah here's the template of what we've used for the last 20 years how can we make the athlete fit into this template so we can roll it out in every place we possibly can versus what you just talked about it's now how do we get a deeper more value connected relationship with an athlete that we can find this mutual partnership where we can accomplish things for the athlete and the athlete can accomplish things for that. And there's probably no better example right now than that than Steph Curry, right? I mean, he's a UA athlete. Mm -hmm. He is probably the most visible basketball player on the planet. And I'm supposing that's one of the reasons why, you know, we extended, extended, we, <laughs> look at, I just made myself part of UA. That was awfully nice of me. That's one of the reasons why his contract just was extended into what can be a lifetime deal with the brand. That's clearly a big commitment for UA. Can you talk about that partnership a little bit, what it means for UA and how does that exemplify all the things that we've just talked about specific with using Steph Curry as the example? Yeah, it's it's a tremendous deal and opportunity for for UA. Point blank, basketball is not where we were born, right? right? It's not where we're what we're famous for, and having someone like him and his brand power to elevate and give us credibility in the basketball space is is that's the biggest reason, right? Why why we needed him? A lot of validation. Side, yeah, brand validation, sport validation, and then on the flip side. We've grown with him these last 10, 11 plus years and have developed um, extremely tailored product to fit the needs of, of him as an athlete, as a, as a basketball player, as a, one of the best shooters. And so he wants to now sort of take that to a much wider audience and give visibility into the technology that UA has developed for him and has, you know, in some cases helped with his success on the court um, and getting that shot just a little extra faster and, <laughs> and having that extra grip on, on the, on the hardwood floors so that he can, you know, make those, those quick turns and, and those quick cuts and on all that stuff that he's really very much known for. Just like the ones you made back in the day yourself. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but anyway, so no, the, the, the biggest thing about that partnership w- was certainly um, a merge of interest, certainly, you know, need, needs from him to want to continue to grow his legacy beyond his playing days on the court. Um, and then certainly for us to continue to grow our, our basketball business in the States, globally speaking, we know he's an international recognized yeah. superstar at this point. And so we understand that we kind of needed each other to kind of validate where we were but let's go to the next level and so the the partnership is is going to do just that um we're going to start seeing it here in the next 
few weeks. I, I can't. I'll give you a little. Give us a, a little. little give hint. us a little. Little preview. A little. <laughs> a little flavor. Uh, we're we're going to be announcing. Uh, you know, the first Curry brand sort of athlete, like kind of signed under his ah, cool. uh, ecosystem, which which we're really excited about. So there's going to be more opportunities to kind of grow an athlete roster that lives, you know, within Curry brand and Under Armour. Um, and then some more international opportunities as well. You know, the there's a huge appetite in Europe for his products, a huge appetite in in China and the rest of APAC as well. Um, really underscoring so, that know, global part of the of the gig. Yeah, the global part of the gig. That's that's definitely going to kick in for us. Um, mm. And it's so exciting, right? It is. It's very exciting. It's uh, it's going to be. Definitely, you know, some learning curves, I'm sure, too, when, you, when you're growing a brand in its infancy yeah. stages. Um, you know, it's only really, what, two to three years old at this point. And so some learnings for us all. But the but the the energy behind it is is very, very positive. And I think the it's also I think him as a as an individual and, and the curry brand as a whole, the whole mission is, is changing the game for good. So anything that we do around this particular initiative is always going to have a repercussion on trying to affect things in the right way. Um, yep. He has a big passion for women's sports, women's basketball, for golf, for underserved communities that obviously don't reap the benefits that some others do. And so anytime we go into certain markets, there's always a, a community impact initiative tied to it. And that's sort of always been the case since him as, as a, you know, as a, as a star, he's always done that, but him bringing that into the brand and you're going to start seeing a lot of, or a lot more, I should say, of those types of initiatives. Anytime we're trying to sell a new product, yes, we're going to try and drive revenue for the company, but there's always going to be a sort of a, an underlying factor that's going to impact, you know, some type of charity or nonprofit yeah. or organization in the right way to help advance sports in the right way as well. So as we get ready to wrap up here, I got another question for you, and it, yeah. it has to do with how competitive the category of business you're working in is. Because I, I don't know if there's anything more competitive than sports apparel, particularly when you start looking at footwear. I mean, the trends change at lightning speed, and people are incredibly passionate about it, right? In in mm-hmm. just just fun, in fundamentally so, and so I'm interested how you personally how do you stay on top of an industry that's moving so quickly are there things you look for or the things that you do on a day-to-day basis mm-hmm. to try to maintain just that even half step ahead of what's going on it's yeah i mean competitive is definitely <laughs> probably like the the baseline of 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 what this industry is like, uh, yeah. you know, one of the some of the key things that I do personally speaking, tied to wanting just to keep up to beat on what's going on, you know, outside of reading the traditional sports yeah. business, you know, type of uh, outlets that are out there and staying on top of those, I read a lot. Of, you know, keep up to date on what my competitors are doing. Quite honestly, yeah, space, yeah, yeah. Um, and and you know, following all of their initiatives as well. Other elements that I'm doing are reading a little bit more deeper into the retail side of things and the fashion side of things because, uh, you know, so much crossover now, so much crossover. So business of fashion has actually become one of my regular reads that I definitely prior to UA did not pay attention to. (laughs) Um, And so uh, it's good to kind of see, 
because they do talk about Adidas and Nike and, and other some of our competitors who are doing a lot more in that space. And that's certainly somewhere where we as a brand have not uh, gone so far yet. And so uh, we do have intentions to getting a little bit more into the that space, but it's just good to know and understand like where where that's going, where that's living. And then on the other side of things too is is really in the athlete space, kind of keeping a good beat on the new uh and mm. like kind of challenger brands that are coming in right into the space like sketchers and lulu and viori and all these other uh sort of sports uh lifestyle brands that are coming in and who are actually coming into the footwear space too not just apparel yep. uh it's it's been very interesting for us to kind of see how they're approaching things in a lot of ways you know we're kind of we're not quite the nike or adidas you know at this point we're not therefore the new you know up and coming brands either we're we're still very much a very big established brand so we can't let the young ones and the new ones come in and attempt to poach and this and the other but they are and they're being very successful at it. so what are they doing that we're not that's attracting athletes to want to be with them and, and those types of things so the target is always moving it's always moving um and it's very and it's moving very fast um mm -hmm. and it's and so it's it's really important in my role especially to keep up to date on on these different strategic moves that are being done by competitors in the space and informing leaders in my and you know, teammates in my sort of group that, hey, this is happening. We need to keep an eye on this. We keep an eye on this. Can, you know, can we add it to our measurement analysis and making sure that we understand like how they're trending, what they're doing and, and all those things and pulling consumer insights to understand too, like the perception that they might have and, and those types of things. Thames and Barrel, a senior lead for global sports marketing, basketball team sports for Under Armour. Thanks very much for the time. But before I let you go, I am, uh, I'm going to put you in the lightning round. I've got a series of questions for you uh, that you do not see coming. These are these are surprising, and I need the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear the question. Are you prepared? Okay, let me take a deep breath. <laughs> I'll take one too because these questions are amazing. Okay, here we go. What's the greatest mispronunciation of your last name? Oh boy, um, God, there is a long list of those. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm trying to think of one that comes to mind. Um, I'll think about it. I'll, let me go. All right, you think about it. We'll come back at the end. Okay. It's obviously, there were so many, it was a complete stumper. Yeah, yeah, uh, two of your three brothers are named Mikey and Jordan. Uh, so was the basketball thing kind of inevitable? <laughs> It's funny you say that. I uh, I always ask my mom if she did that on purpose, but she absolutely did not. Um, <laughs> totally random. <laughs> totally random. Okay, but it definitely set the tone. Yeah. Uh, you have dual citizenship in France and England. So, French food or English food? French food. Oh, that. Oh, sorry, England. Okay, that was pretty quick. <laughs> uh, you were apparently once a bartender at Barco Beach, a restaurant in your hometown of Saint Maxime. What was your specialty drink to make? Uh, so it's actually my family-owned restaurant. I had a feeling. Um, and uh, my favorite drink to make was our mojito, which oh, by far on uh, the French seashore drinking a mojito—that cannot be terrible. Yes. All right, mm -hmm. we're moving on to the next one. All right, ready? You <laughs> scored a buzzer beater against Macedonia in the 2010 Euros. What's Macedonian trash talk like? <laughs> Um, God, I couldn't even repeat it to you, but <laughs> so pretty bad. If you can't pretty even say it, right? yeah. All right, all right, all right. Last one. All right, in French, please say my word. But this is the best podcast I've ever been on. 
Mon Dieu, c'est le meilleur podcast sur lequel j'ai été ces jours-ci. The only thing I was hoping for was a Zutalor, but okay, we'll go with Mandu. Uh, perfect. Okay, good. Can, you, can you come up with a good mispronunciation or do I need to just come up with one on my own because I can be excellent at it? Uh, I think you should come up with one because you'll probably come up with a new one that I haven't heard yet. All right. Well, Tam is in Barry Alette. Senior lead of Global Sports Marketing, <laughs> Basketball and Team Sports for Under Armour. Thanks very much for spending the time. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of the one-on-one -on -one Sports Business Conversations podcast. If you enjoyed it, we always appreciate a subscribe, share, comment, or like. And don't forget, you can always find past episodes at abcpartners.com slash podcast. This podcast is written, produced, edited, and hosted by Dave Almey. And theme music was composed by Scott Holmes. <laughs>